All right, let's look at verse 10 briefly. If you work with, with your outline, I'm going to do, as you know, we do when we're working through some concepts, some etymology, some, some linguistic exercises, some principles around what the term discernment means. And, uh, and then we will pick up on Friday by using an apostolic event in Acts 16 to see how the apostle processed that gift of discernment. Look at it again in verse 10. Um, here we have in verse 10, to another a working of miracles, to another the gift of prophecy, and another the discerning of spirits, discerning of spirits. And then we will consummate next week with uh, the gift of languages and the interpretation thereof. So what we are looking at today, ladies and gentlemen, is the discerning, discerning of spirits. Two really classifications, and I hope I can touch on the second one. It's in your outline. I'm going to give the categories. What I want to say about discernment is, uh, according to what we're looking at in our text, and this is probably true across every aspect of what discernment is generally understood to be in, uh, in language, in history, uh, in etymology, uh, it's a three-part process. And uh, in your outline, um, we have subpoint A, B, and C. And the first part of any kind of legitimate discerning has to do with observation. And that's kind of what I want you to look at for a moment, our markdown observation. You and I can't discern anything if we don't have the capacity to see it. And the word that we will put uh, near that is the idea of focus. When we are going to exercise the gift of discernment, if that gift is ours, and it is to every believer to a certain degree, what discernment requires at its initial starting point, at the initial phase of discernment, is focus need you to capture that. If you and I are not focused, it means we're distracted. And you can't discern anything distracted. One of the goals of the enemy is that you and I would be non-discerning, undiscerning, incapable of actually understanding what it is that we need to be uh, aware of and, uh, and concerned with. So the first thing you and I want to observe is that uh, discernment requires observation, the capacity to focus. I'm going to drill home in, in, on that in a moment. But secondly, it also requires deconstruction or the process of taking a thing apart. We've used this word before. I'm going to show you in the grammar that it's there. To deconstruct. To deconstruct. Um, so the idea of discerning something is observing it, having a focus on it, a point of focus, that's critical, a point of focus. And then as you focus on it, you move into the process of deconstructing that thing, deconstructing that thing. That would also fall into the uh, category of um, analysis. Uh, penetrating into something to uh, create categories around the meaning of that thing. This is what our inherent in our word for discernment will prove to us to deconstruct or literally the idea is to divide, to divide, to divide. Or another way to put it is to distinguish. And this is what we do anytime that you and I are analyzing anything. We look to see whether or not the composite whole of that thing has categories, 
has the capacity to be broken down in legitimate categories by which we can understand its constituent parts. That is the process of discerning anything, to deconstruct it, to divide it, to distinguish it. So first, there is a point of what? Focus, which is observation. When you and I are called to discern something, something may call our attention to it, or we may just be by habit capable of actually locking in on something that we would set our focus on. This is called, again, salience relevance. This is the idea that when, um, when we actually understand what we're dealing with, what is before us, we, we begin to know how to look at what's important. When, when you're dealing with something and you're really wanting to know what's going on, you're looking for what is important in this situation. Like we could, we could imagine uh, any amount of different situations that you and I might be in. Uh, we can imagine innocuous things like being in school. So we might be taking up a particular subject, let's say geography, uh, in school. And so you enter into a classroom, a setting. You have to actually know how to be there and be aware of what the subject is that you're dealing with and how to actually focus on the important things that will constitute a productive hour or two in that class around that subject. So a student is really a person who knows how to focus. A student is someone who knows how to analyze or here's the other word, critique. Critique, that's inherent in the word that we're about to break down that would constitute discernment because to be able to critique something is to be able to take it apart as well. Um, the third part is what I would call a kind of uh, um, summation of the effort. Focus on something, deconstruct it, analyze it, right? Critique it, break it up into its constituent parts, distinguishable parts. We'll take Bible verses to affirm that. And then finally, what you are doing is organizing it in a way in which you can bring about an assessment, a conclusion an assessment or a conclusion. And this one is really important, an assessment, a conclusion. And actually the word here for conclusion for you and I is going to be the word judgment, judgment. When you and I are focused on something and we are working it through, the goal is to be able to render a judgment. When we are discerning something, we are seeking to render a judgment as to the nature of that thing. Does that make some sense? All right, good. So this is the way um, the idea of discernment. Again, notice that it's the gift of discerning of spirit. So we're actually now dealing with the discerning part. In our um, Bibles, the uh, Greek word here, and don't, you know, don't be too bothered by it starts off with the prefix dis dis okay um dis actually in the greek is diop i'll talk about this in a moment and the root verb which sometimes is a noun is krino dia krino dia krino okay that is our greek word for to discern now for those of us who know a little bit about grammar, we know the inflection of words. We know how that a verb or a noun can really be the same word, but used in different functions. To crino really means to judge. To crino means to judge, okay? That's really what that means. The prominent places in your New Testament where the Bible tells us to judge righteous judgment is to crino. 
It, it really comes from the idea of crisis or a critique. Those are three cousin words, okay? To critique, to crino, to judge. To crisis is the impact of your judgment. When the Bible talks about in John chapter 16, verse 8, Let's see. Let's see if this will work. John 16, 8, uh, where the Lord is speaking. When he is when he is come, when he that is the spirit of truth is come, he will reprove the world of sin. He will he will convince the world of sin. He will bring them into a judgment or a crisis. His assessment is to lead you and I to crisis. What it is, what is it? It's the assessment that you and I are not right with God. OK, so. Like like on a cosmological level, when you and I see a crisis taking place in the world, we feel a sense of vulnerability, do we not? And we recognize a kind of moral or ethical mandate to be derived from the assessment of that crisis. Would you agree? And that's because the proverb says the curse never comes causeless. Like we may not know why that curse is there. But intuitively, because we are moral agents under an ethical mandate, we go, Lord, why did that happen? And we will also transfer that event, that crisis, to ourselves as we would begin the process of discerning it and us. This is called reciprocal uh, judging where we are going, am I vulnerable to that crisis in my life as a judgment against me because of my behavior? Does that make some sense? Right. So uh, in all reality, discernment is really about staying safe from crisis. Discernment is really all about staying safe from crisis. The man or the woman who is non-discerning operates out of what we call the contrast or the antithesis. A non-discerning person is a person void of understanding. A non-discerning person is a foolish person. A non-discerning person is a gullible person. The non-discerning person is never spoken well of in the Proverbs. The individual that does not have the capacity to discern or critique or analyze or assess and therefore make a proper judgment is an individual who is uh, under a kind of curse of being reprobate. Because the idea of reprobation is losing the capacity for properly judging morally and ethically what a crisis really is. Did that make some sense? Of course. So I want us to drill down into this a little bit more under um, point number one, discernment defined as uh, diacrino. Dio is a preposition in the Greek, as you guys will always know it. Dia means to go through or penetrate. Dia, like the term diameter. You guys have gotten that before, right? To, to dia something is to go through it to go through. Whenever we have a dia on the front of a Greek word, it's called an intensifying preposition. And it's the idea of making something that is taking place thorough. So the metaphor here that I want to use for you to stay within the framework of discernment, because this will have to do with the way we think, and it will have to do with the way we see. So if you look up on my board here, I got these two conspicuous circles. You guys see that? 
two conspicuous circles. I'm going to make them even more weird right now. But these two conspicuous circles represent points of entry, two points of entry. And the points of entry will be from here through. When you take a, when you take a point and you run it through something, that's called dia. Did you guys know that? To penetrate through a diameter, a circle, is called a dia. This is called a penetrating proposition. So when you start out here and then you go through, you are piercing through that subject. Do you guys see that? You're piercing through. That's what dia means, right? That's the idea of dia. Now, these two circles are actually for us, um, if I can persuade you, I might have to get Lamont up here. These are eyes. Did that come out a little bit better? Eyes. Uh huh. These are eyes. Let me put put a mouth right there. Y'all got that? Okay. All right. So, how many eyes are there? That's the idea of dia. That's the idea of dia. So, stay with me. I'm getting ready to work with you. So, discernment has to do with the capacity to see. It's always the case. But discernment requires two eyes. Dia discernment. So in Latin, the idea of discernment is the idea of dividing the eyes, dividing the eyes, seeing a thing twice. Cerne, to discern, scepter or scepter means to see a thing twice. Did that make some sense? All right, so I'm getting ready to talk about why discernment technically is often the metaphor of the, enlight the enlightening of the eyes. So God has given you and I how many eyes? Right. So if we were to take away one of our eyes and just want to kind of build it anatomically for a moment, we would have how many eyes? Right. Is one eye better than two eyes? Right. And so God has given us two eyes. Now, why did he give us two eyes? He gave us two eyes to see the same thing twice. He gave us two optical lenses to see the same thing twice. And he gave us two eyes in order that you and I might see through things, to see through things. That's called discernment, to see through a thing. Would you agree? He gave us two eyes to see through a thing, the eyes of your what? Understanding being what? Enlightened. Is that what Ephesians chapter one says? So when you and I are discerning, we are seeking to see what? Through a thing. But he also gave us two eyes in order that we might see broadly, broadly, broadly. See if I can help us with that. Just on an anatomical level, if you were dealing with one eye, you could see, couldn't you? But you would see much better with two. But that's only if the two eyes cooperate. Does that make some sense? So now what the two eyes have to do is they have to actually become synonymous in their trajectory on their point of focus and they have to overlap. That's what your eyes do. As they protrude out at its subject, they both look at its subject and then what it does is it broaden its peripheral vision. Am I making some sense? Right, so this is important as a kind of instruction on discernment. Discernment requires seeing through a thing, not just at a thing. 
It requires seeing through a thing, not just at a thing. Discernment also requires seeing broadly the surrounding components of that thing. So for the believer, when we use the metaphor of this, of the eyes in relationship to discernment, what you and I want to be able to do is see broadly and we want to be able to see deeply. We want to see broadly because you and I want to be able to ascertain the context. Broadness has to do with context. You remember I've talked to you guys before. We're getting ready to go into the scriptures, but I have to lay this down. I've talked to you guys about focus traps. Have I talked to you about that? And so you have to know that what I'm talking about is not about your physical eye, even though this uh, anatomical body part is an essential mechanism in your understanding. Would you agree? But here's the thing. Like right now I'm talking to you, am I not? Um, you are doing way more thinking than you are seeing right now. But your thinking is itself seeing. So when the Bible is talking about seeing, it's really talking about thinking. It's, a, it's about comprehending. It's about understanding. So what I'm doing with the eyes of your mind as I'm talking to you is I'm clarifying what they are and I'm helping you understand how they should function on two levels. Penetrating deeply into a thing and seeing broadly that thing so that you understand its context. This is a person of whom the Bible would describe as a wise person. A wise person sees broadly and a wise person sees deeply. The man or the woman that is going to exercise the gift of discernment is a person who's going to have to <clears throat> understand the process of seeing deeply and broadly. Did that make some sense? And it is a process. This is why I want to just briefly go back to our opening points. Uh, when we talk about discernment, we're talking about observation, right? So you have to have a point of what? Point of focus. And then when we talk about discernment, we have to have a process of what? Deconstruction, analysis, right? Dividing and distinguishing a thing. That is a process. <clears throat> but the end point is not just tearing a thing apart. Remember, understanding is to do what? Put it back together again and to be able to render an answer. Discernment is rendering an answer. Drawing a conclusion is what we want to do. So I'm going to work this through a little bit by example. <clears throat> Under point number one, discernment, sub point A, to observe through a thing or to critique it. Is that what's in your outline? To, to observe or to what? Critique. Y'all got that? Look at Matthew chapter 16, uh, verse 3. Matthew 16, 3. I think if I've got that right. Notice what Jesus says to the rulers. He says, in the morning, it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and lowering. I'm should start at verse 2 because this is the beginning of a verse. Notice what and he said. He answered unto them and said, when it is evening, you say it will be what? Because what are they using? Their eyes. But they're also using their what? Right, because their brain has a set of database by which their eyes allow them to and draw conclusions as to the weather pattern. And so what Jesus says is when it's evening, it will be fair weather for the sky is red, verse 3. And then he says, and in the morning it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and lowering. Oh, you hypocrites, you can what? You can what? The face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the time. Effectually, what Jesus said here is you only have one eye. 
Because if you had two eyes, you'd understand the analogy of what you see in the sky as a representation of the seasons that you are in now with Messiah in front of you, with Messiah about to leave and judgment lowering itself like heavy clouds upon you because you are rejecting my message. Did that come home? Right. So when we're talking about discernment, we're talking about seeing a thing twice, seeing it for what it is and then seeing it for what it means. This is critical when it comes to relationships with people. And, 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 and our term there is the idea of um, looking at a thing with just the physical eye and physical understanding. Look at it in Matthew 13, verse 13. This is the same idea. Matthew 13, 13. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, it's not enough just to see a thing with the physical eye. And you've heard this before, but I want you to capture it. Therefore, speak I unto them in parables. Isn't that the question that the disciples were raising? Why are you speaking in parables? He says, therefore, speak I unto them in parables because they what? They seen, blepo is our Greek term, but what? Do not see. So they see one way, but they don't see another way. They see and yet they are seen literally in the present verb form and do not see. And they hear, they are hearing, but neither, uh, they are hearing, but they do not hear. And neither therefore do they what? All right. So would you be able to agree that what they're doing right there is they're setting their eyes or their mental optic on something and they are not deconstructing it to the conclusion of being able to draw or render a answer. They're looking at it, but they're really not seeing it. They're hearing it, but they really are not hearing it. Am I making some sense? That, that's like being in a classroom, in a study, and not getting the study. The study is not the problem. The problem is your capacity to process it. See what I'm getting at? Now, we could ask under these three steps, the first one, are you focused? Because if you're not focused, you're not going to even be in the process of deconstruction. Am I making some sense? Like right now with the people in this classroom, some of us are tracking with me easily because we've talked about these things before. And so we understand when you look at a thing, you got to look through. You got to be able to take that thing apart. You got to be able to understand and identify its distinguishable parts. Then you got to put it back together and then you can go, ah, I understand. That's called discernment, because if that thing requires you to do something as a consequence of it being in your way, you are obligated morally to understand it. It doesn't matter what that event is. You and I are obligated to uh, understand it. And so Jesus said they heard him preaching again and again, but they didn't comprehend what he said. Leviticus chapter 10 verse 11 is the Old Testament example of letting us know how important this is. Um, a lot of people wonder why God took Israel through all of these um, ceremonial laws and all of these fastidious, um, you know, dietary laws and, and all of these codes that they had to go through. And here God says, this is the reason I did it. Notice that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. Go back to verse 10. I think it is Leviticus 10, 10. Yeah, that you may put what? Difference between holy and unholy, between clean and unclean. Now, to do that requires discernment, doesn't it? To put difference between holy and unholy, clean and unclean, 
that that you might verse 11 as he's saying it now in verse 11 all these exercises are in order that you might teach the children of israel all the statutes which the lord had spoken unto them by the hand of moses that's the old testament rendering of what they should be doing this this idea of looking at a thing and then beginning to to deconstruct it i'm calling the word engagement you look at a thing and you engage it you engage it you engage it to know what it is you engage it to see it for what it is. You engage it to analyze it and critique it for what it is, right? Are you guys engaged right now? Right, so, so that is the second level. You focus and you're engaged. You're probably thinking through with me how arduous this process is, aren't you? Right, so it's important for you to understand that too. A person that's given to discerning is a person that does not mind the labor the wrestling, the struggling, the engagement of a thing. All right, so I'll, I'll just use this as a caveat and move on. Sometimes a thing requires this level of analysis, but you're not interested. And because you're not interested, you will not be focused. And where you are not focused, you are going to lose the benefit of seeing that thing for really what it is. It also, therefore, will make you vulnerable to whatever liabilities come with you not understanding what's in front of you. Did that make some sense? Right. So it's important for you and I to know the Bible is very clear about the danger of the undiscerning person or the undiscerning Christian. Christians technically are not to be undiscerning. But a lot of them are because, again, another word in the proverb besides void of understanding or um, or naive or foolish is the word slothful. We are often slothful when we are called to focus on a thing and exercise the energy of the mind for critique and analysis because what's in front of us is important enough for us to wrestle with it and figure it out. That makes some sense, right? This is why things will happen in your life that will be alarming and challenging, right? You, you're going along the way, and then all of a sudden, y'all know what I'm talking about, where we're doing pretty good, and then the next thing we know, we get that piece of news. I don't even care what it is. Immediately, your blood pressure goes up. Immediately, you lock in on that thing, and you are forced to focus on it, right? But often, you're challenged because now you don't know how to take your focus which is that first point and move it into a productive or a rational or a logical process of deconstructing that thing so as to quickly assess what it is. See what I'm getting at? Because if you can, if you can be called upon in an emergency to focus on a thing, tear it apart, organize it, assess what it is, then you can give it an answer. I got an answer for that. And now we can quell every moment of anxiety that comes because the only thing that quells a crisis is an answer. I, I'm, I'm trying to lay down an idea for you around discerning people. Discerning people come up with answers. That's what discerning people do. Discerning people come up with answers because discerning people don't mind being committed to a point of focus where something is important to them or important to people that are important to them. And I love when the inner, I love when the, uh, the thrill of the, um, 
the 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 dopamine drives me into a, a state of hyper alertness because now I know my body is prepared to engage that thing as long as I need to engage it to get an answer. Does that make some sense? And that's the reason why God will give it to you. That is your limbic system kicking in saying, hey, alert, alert. There's something to do here. Don't be lazy. Don't turn over like the door hinge of the proverb. The slothful is like the door hinge. He just turns over and goes back to sleep. No, something is a crisis. It requires your discernment. Make sense? And aren't you happy when God gives you grace to be alarmed, to engage that thing, to deconstruct it, to comprehend it for what it is, because you can tell because you went at it, God has blessed you with progress to begin to understand what's going on. Nothing is more satisfying than going, aha, I see the problem. And then you can draw a legitimate conclusion on it. This is extremely important. So under our first point to observe through a thing, that is to critique that thing, uh, and, and Jesus said the rulers couldn't do that. We are now at the deconstruction or the dividing or the separating of the thing. Uh, I want to give you a couple more examples in Matthew's uh, gospel, chapter 21, verse 21. We're going to just look at a few more. Matthew's 21, 21. Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, if you have faith and what? Doubt not, you shall not only do that which is done to this fig tree, but also if you shall say unto the mountain, be thou removed and be cast into the sea, it shall be what? All right, so like right there is a big old promise that he throws at us. So let me talk about it briefly. I'm not going to stay there with it long. The Lord took the disciples through an object lesson. Earlier that day, or the day before, he took them into the temple for the last time. So they're kicking it with him. He takes them into the temple. As they're headed to the temple, he finds a fig tree. And as he approaches the fig tree, he discovers that the fig tree does not have what? It's not operating according to its purpose. And especially for the one who made it. See, Jesus is the creator of everything, as we would say, right? So when the master comes to the tree, the tree should be functioning according to the master's will. It was the season of figs, but it wasn't bearing fruit. And what did Jesus do? He cursed that fig tree. You guys remember that? That would be a crazy optic for people who did not know who Jesus was. And it would be a stone of stumbling for people who did not know that Jesus was teaching a spiritual lesson by that event. So they went on about their way and then they came back. And as the earlier portion of the text says, they saw the fig tree that Jesus had cursed completely withered. So Jesus had performed a what? Miracle. Y'all with me now, right? And they're asking, how is this the case? And this is why Jesus is saying what he said. Jesus said unto them, verily I say unto you, if you have what? Faith, therefore, is a necessary mechanism for discernment. Faith, therefore, is a necessary mechanism for discernment. So let me ask you, because I'm just going to walk this through, because Jesus is teaching us. <clears throat> Am I going to be consistently uh, successful at discerning something that is brought my way by God's providence if I don't have faith? Right now, and, and I'm going to tell you why as we deal with this, okay? <clears throat> because faith actually is the optimism that God grants you to exercise the tools that he gives you 
to be able to handle the thing that he brings your way to challenge you. You and I need faith to trace our, or to face our trials. If a trial comes your way, don't you need faith to, to face it? Right. A trial doesn't always afford you the ability to not deal with it. And I know a lot of times when our trials come our way, don't we want to just avoid the trial? Lord, I don't want to go through it. I do not want to go through it. Guess what? The trial doesn't go away. The trial doesn't go away. Now, what is he calling you to do? He's calling you to be active and optimistic in your faith and to step into that trial by focusing in on it, by engaging it, by handling it, by deconstructing it, by analyzing it and waiting for God to give you an answer as to what is this thing that I'm going through. Very good, isn't it? Very good. Very good. So it's important for you to get that often trials that would uh, create a knee jerk reaction in me to run are really to build my faith through the process of exercising discernment as to what that thing is. What if that trial is, that's coming at you is really not about you? What if it's about somebody else and God needs you to actually understand that thing so that you can explain to somebody else what they are about to go through? See what I'm getting at? What if it's not about you? What if you are simply God's point man or point woman to go through that thing, focus in on it, go through it as difficult as it may be, wrestle with that thing, tear it apart by the grace of God, put it in its proper category, organize it so that it's understandable and render a judgment so you can go out and say, hey, this is what that is. That makes sense, right? Well, across everything in the life of faith, this is how you and I come to discern good and evil. It's by going through trials. It's by going through difficulties, using discernment. Look at what he said, and I'm going to tell you where the word that you and I want to be careful about. Jesus has been said unto the verily I say unto you, if you have faith and what? Doubt not. That's our word, diacrino. If you have faith and doubt not, what does he mean? Don't get stuck always discerning it come to a conclusion on it see so here it is this is why i'm talking about three categories one is focus on it if there's an evil look it in the face that's one one thing focus secondly understand that thing get in there and wrestle with that thing thirdly don't stop wrestling with it until you get an answer you and i don't get to hang out in doubting dungeon dungeon we don't get to just constantly be going back and forth. I don't know. Maybe so. I don't know. Maybe so. So the idea of doubting is the idea of constantly analyzing, constantly weighing it out, but never coming to a conclusion. Did that make some sense? All right. It's very important for you and I to know that. That's why he said, you shall not only do this, which is done to the fig tree, but if you say to the mountain, be thou removed and cast into the sea, it shall be done. That's a crazy challenge. But he gave it to the apostles. And what he was teaching the apostles was when I send you out into all the world with the gospel, you're going to be faced with mountain like trials. And those mountains are kingdoms that oppose the gospel. And, and the apostles will have to see the mountains for what they are, discern them, engage them, deconstruct them, and render an answer to those oppositional mountains that are seeking to hinder them from preaching the gospel. Did that come home, ladies and gentlemen? All right. And so the principle is true for you and I. Any little trial can become a mountain for us. You know that. 
please. It can start off so small and then after a while just seems unbearable, right? You're in the process of deconstruction. You don't quit. You trust God all the way through it. Lord, help me to discern this thing. Help me to understand what's going on and therefore help me to render a conclusion. Here it is. Uh, this is going to be Romans chapter uh, 14, verse 23. I've got a few more things under this that I want to lay out. And it, this will appear more clearly for us in our study on Friday. But this is true with everything we're dealing with in this walk of faith that you and I are in. Um, uh, verse 22, start at verse 22. I love these two verses. What Paul has done in Romans 14 is explain to you and me how we need to walk in humility and harmony with our weak brothers and strong brothers. You guys remember that, right? If you got weak brothers in the faith who are struggling with whether they can do this, do that, touch this, touch that, touch this, touch that, don't receive them to doubtful disputation. There's our word again, to diacrino. Don't be judging them unendingly and tossing them to and fro because of your um, your own uh, insecurities about what they're doing. Okay, unfortunately, in the context of Romans 14, Paul was opening up, warning the strong people in the faith to be completely gentle with the weak people in the faith. Let the weak people in the faith come to understand over time that everything is lawful when you understand what Christ has done for you in it. Right. Does that make some sense? But now as he ends the chapter, here's what he's going to say to the weak person. He's going to say, hey, you weak people, you got to grow up. You got to be you got to be strong enough to be able to draw a conclusion as to what constitutes what is lawful for you and what is not. You can't be being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. You got to get to a place where you can trust the Lord for that thing. And that's really important. So this is why he starts off at verse 22. Do you have what? Here we are at faith again. Then it says what? Have it to yourself before God. Now, again, I'm going to break down here because this is going to be very helpful for you. You will tell people that you have faith. The most important person for whom you must persuade that that is so is God. Now, I, I just want this to get wrapped around your head. Because you, 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 you talk about being tossed to and fro. Think that your faith, assess that your faith is for you to put in the hands of any other fickle human being to say yes or no or right or wrong or good or bad. You want to have a faith that's going to be just tossed to and fro? Put your faith in the hands of men and you will you will be tossed to and fro all the days of your life. Am I making some sense? So when we say we are people of faith, the first place with whom that should be a settled matter is before who? God. Right. What that's going to do is settle you down when people, watch this now, don't understand what you're doing. And when people don't agree with what you're doing. Now, you know, if you don't have a strong enough faith to have prioritized God as the quorum deo of your faith, what people think about your faith will shake your faith. Because at that point, guess what you're doing? You're giving them your faith to critique, to deconstruct to rearrange, and they may not give it back to you, <laughs> you know, or put back together. 
whole and right. They may give you your faith back to you in a distorted fashion, in a broken fashion. They may abuse your faith. Yes, indeed. That makes some sense, right? That makes some sense. So you and I have to be careful about important people in our lives taking secondary and tertiary positions under God. What this will do is it will allow you to negotiate with God as to the struggles you may be going through around a thing. Even though you take the advice of other people, the advice of other people may never supplant the advice or approval of God. That makes some sense, right? All right, let's work through this a little bit more. Do you have faith? Have it, be, have it to yourself before God. Happy is he that does not condemn himself in the thing in which he what? Powerful. Powerful. Now, here's what's going on, just in case you, Pastor, what are you talking about? You and I are making decisions every day. These are called these choice-making decisions. I talk about them all the time, right? So you and I are making choices every day. You can't help it. What does that mean? You made judgments on those choices. What does that mean? You are asserting that you have discerned those choices. On any given day, let's say we made five critical choices. Those five critical choices presuppose that we have rendered an answer to those choices. Does it not? If it means that we've rendered an answer, it means that we've already critiqued it. We've already torn it apart. We've already analyzed it and we can give our yes or no to it. Is that right? Right. This is how you live a life of confidence. I know this is acceptable with God. I know that's acceptable. I know that I know that doesn't work. I know that doesn't work. So daily we live in light of the will of God around the things we have come to learn through discernment are acceptable with God. Does that make some sense? All right. So I'm going to give you the verse and we're going to drill down a little bit more. I got about 10 more minutes with you. It's Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And three, you've heard it before, but I want to apply it here if you guys don't mind. Here's what it says. Um, verse, verse one will help. <clears throat> I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That's a really, um, really all-encompassing statement. And it's basically saying, depend upon God, body, soul, and mind. Totally depend upon. Cast yourself upon God sacrificially, and let him protect you. Let him guide you. Let him use you. Does that make some sense? Very good. I mean, we could go into much more of a sacerdotal religious component, but a sacrificial life is a life of commitment to God, body, soul, and mind. All right, Lord, here I am. I'm yours. Now, if we say that, then verse two comes into play. And here's verse two. And do not be conformed to this what? And do not what? Be conformed to this world. What does that mean? That means I have to go through a daily process of discerning what is right and what is wrong. I have to now judge and critique things. I have to engage things and analyze things. I have to draw conclusions and render an answer, do I not? Otherwise, you can, you can imagine yourself being the kind of person where you don't do anything anytime, anywhere, anyhow. You're just sitting in the house not moving. Because if you're sitting in the house not moving, you don't have to deal with making choices. But if you got to go out and deal with life, if you got to face people, if you got to pay bills, if you got to engage situations, don't you have to constantly now have a set of faithful mechanisms by which you discern what's right and wrong? Don't you have to do it? Is that not called your walk of faith? 
Yes, it does. Okay, I think you're with me for the moment. Here's what he says. Be not conformed to this world. That is your overall negative exercise around discernment. If I am not going to be conformed to this world, I've got to see every danger that constitutes a warning and I have to be able to analyze it and critique it and render an answer to it so that it does not bring me in captivity to it. Do not be conformed to the world because the world is ready to seize upon you and bring you and shape you into its mold. You are not living a passive Christian life. Faith is not passive. So as we're talking about the gift of discernment, I'm laying that foundation down at the deeper spiritual and, and psychological level around faith because I want you to know you and I are dealing with this at the nuance level every day. At the nuance level every day, we're dealing with discerning this, this phrase here that Paul is bringing up now. But be ye transformed by the what? Renewing of your mind. There it is. The renewing of your mind. What are you doing with the renewing of your mind? You are focusing on things. You are analyzing things. You are critiquing things. You are assessing things. You are evaluating things. And then you're trying to get to that third level of answering that thing, drawing conclusions. Aha, this is good. Aha, this is bad. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for giving me the integrity of pressing through in that thing and discovering, man, if I would have followed through with that, that would have jacked me way up. See what I'm getting at, saints? And I'm not even dealing with the latter part. Right now, I'm just dealing with the principle of discernment. On Friday, we're going to be dealing with the targets that um, Paul is talking about, the discerning of spirits, okay? I'm going to give you the categories in a minute, but it's a discerning of spirits. That's the gift, discerning of spirits. Make sense? But what we're talking about now is the process, the mechanism, the, the gift of being able to focus on a thing, to be alert on a thing to be able to analyze a thing and to study it. Proverbs chapter, uh, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 28. You've heard this one before. I want this to come home because this is the Christian. This is the Christian that's serious about getting through this world, understanding this crazy world that he or she is in. This, is, this here is the Christian that you want to be. And this is the Christian that you want to know. Listen to what the verse says. Are you there? The heart of the righteous studieth. Do you see that? That's a very, very important. The heart of the righteous studieth. That's what it does. It studies. Now, now what does that mean in, 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 in the Hebrew grammar? It means meditate. The heart of the righteous meditates. Listen to the verse, Psalm 1, verse 2. We're going to come back here. You guys know Psalm 1, verse 2. You know Psalm 1, verse 1? Do you know Psalm 1, verse 2? Now notice what Psalm 1, verse 2 is. It's the heart of the believer. Psalm 1, verse 2 is the heart of the believer. Psalm 1, verse 2 gives us two things. The sphere of our study. And then it also gives us the content of our study. Psalm 1 verse 2 says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law doth he study. Do you see it? Does he study? Now, what we're going to pick up on on Friday is why must the word of God 
be the mediating mechanism in the process of discernment when it comes to making right choices because the word of the Lord becomes your light. It's your light. It, it's not your mind. It's not your conceptions. It's the illuminating capacity of the word of God to help you discern things. Am I making some sense now? So go back to Proverbs 15, 28. I want to I drill down a little bit more and then we'll pick it up again on Friday. So any of us can ask the question. In, the, in a given month, am I prudent in my choice making? In a given month, am I, am I making relatively wise choices in a given month, am I, am, I, am I vacillating between stupid choices or good choices? We can ask those questions, can we not? In fact, guess what? It's unavoidable. Like you and I are constantly evaluating where we are in our walk with God. Would you agree with that? But here's a really good question, and a couple verses are going to come up in a minute to, to, to raise. If we're called to discernment, wouldn't it be essential that we are able to actually discern ourselves and, and make a proper assessment of where I am with the Lord? Right, right. Very much so. This same idea of discerning is the idea that Paul is stating when he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 around verse 4, examine yourselves. Please examine yourself because just think about if you and I don't have the ability for self-analysis, self-critique, self-discernment, uh, self-deconstruction. You're not to do that to yourself? You, you, listen, ladies and gentlemen, you have to do that to yourself. Do you understand? Do you understand you actually got to bring yourself in check? You got to bring yourself before the judgment throne of yourself. And you got to use the word of the living God and cast light on yourself so you can be honest about who you are in your path, in your walk. Am I making some sense? Right. You don't have to condemn yourself. We already know that. That's first Corinthians four. But you do have to bring the light in on yourself. And that's what God would have you and I to do. And this is actually where Jesus said the two eyes have to become one. That's where he said, take those two eyes to discernment and make them walk in a unity by which the light that's in you makes your whole body light. That makes some sense, right? All right, so this is the whole point. Examine yourself whether you be in the faith. Prove your own self. Know you not your own selves how that Christ is in you, except you be reprobate. Scary statement, but Paul gave it to the uh, Corinthians. Um, uh, going back to uh, Romans chapter 14, verse 23, I only got five minutes. I want to look at this and then make a, make a final assessment about drawing conclusions. So he says, he that doubteth is damned if he eat because he eats not of what? For whatsoever is not of faith is what? Right, right. So he's actually saying that you and I need to be committed by faith to the process of making right choices about what we do and what we don't do. The believer has to have a confident mechanism of discerning why am I allowing a thing and why am I not allowing a thing, right? Have to. You, you have to be able to do that before God. And then you can know this. Let's say you have a hierarchy that you know how to make a right choice or wrong choice before God. And you say, okay, like, Lord, I'm not real sure if what I'm about to do is right. But I'm going to trust you for it. Is that good to do? 
Right, see, I'm trying to break this down and keep it simple. Lord, I'm not real sure if this is right or wrong. I think it's okay. I don't feel any way about it. I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm blinding myself to information or data that would cause me to trick myself. So I'm just going to trust you. And if it is wrong, will you show me? That's a great way to put it, is it not? All right. So again, that's, that's Psalm 139. David said, search me and try me. If there be any wicked way in me, lead me in the, in the way of righteousness. Isn't that what he said? You know what that means? That means you and I don't have to be in a state of constantly doubting. Remember what I told you the doubting was? That's constantly analyzing it. You know, at some point, you just got to pull the trigger. Am I making some sense? You got to just pull that trigger in Jesus name. And then like a day later, if it's wrong, just let the Holy Ghost say, okay, put it in reverse. Am I making some sense? It's really important to do that. Really important, really important to do this. So, cause see, this is before God. This is you and God. You, you're not, you're not trying to persuade anybody else. Now, what I'm doing is I'm working on the gift of discernment at the mechanistic level, because on Friday, we have to talk about the gift of discernment being employed outside of you around doctrine, around demons, and around people. Those are the three categories. Y'all got that? Doctrines, demons, and people. Just letting you know, the Christian is engaged in battles around doctrine, around demons, and around people. Did that come home? That's why he's saying the discerning of spirits. And, and there are two, there are two categories. They are micro categories and there are macro categories for the believer. That's, that's not my, that, that, I'm, I'm stuck again. That's not a real, is that the real time? What time is it? Okay, good. What time? 7.59? Okay, I got one more minute. Um, is that clock right? Okay, I guess it is. I'm gonna have to get some more glasses. So the so the believer, the believer has been born and brought into a world that does not, at prima facie value, tell you the truth. Please listen to me. Virtually nowhere on the planet is anyone telling you the plain truth. That being the case, you and I have to go through the process of laboring to get at the truth. That's what discernment is about. Did that make some sense? That, that's what discernment is about. And it's at two levels, the micro level of the daily mundane stuff that we deal with. And then at the macro level of the larger frameworks of systems and structures and institutions. This is why I said when we are dealing with the idea of discerning, we want to see through a thing and we want to see what? Broadly. Because when you can see broadly, you can capture the framework of context. Once you capture context, that is seeing big pictures, you can identify strategies of the enemy. One of the things that the enemy loves to do is to keep us focused in on micro distractions. 
so he can get you focus trapped down into narrow little crevices of things that may or may not be valuable. But certainly what they can do at the least is waste your time. And then you'll look up and go, whoa, I have wasted so much time pilfering and petering through this little thing, missing the bigger framework, which is actually much more detrimental to my life. That makes some sense, right? Right. And so the believer wants to, you and I want to be able, because your Bible actually talks about it. Be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, goes about as a roaring lion seeking who may, may devour. Micro. Macro. The macro that Jesus talks about. The macro is this world is dominated by the wicked one. And we are fighting not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and dominions and high places. So the believer has to be serious about the micro battles in front of us and the pettiness of the flesh with our loved ones and with our relatives and with people that we are about and with our own carnality. We have to fight those battles, but you can't be myopic. You still have to stand back and understand the larger framework of what's going on because your job in mind is to be able to render an answer. Going back to Proverbs 15, 28, I'll be done. Proverbs 15, 28. Look at what it says. The heart of the righteous studies to what? It meditates to respond. It meditates to give an answer. If the world is walking in darkness and we are called to walk in the light, the world needs the answers that only the people who walk in the light can give them. Would you agree with that? And so frequently you and I are going to be called upon by people to try to explain what the heck is going on. And when you and I can exercise the gift of discernment that God gives us in the areas of doctrines, which we do, in the area of demons, which we should, and the area of people, which we must, then we, we can explain to people why the world is the way that it is and how to get out of it. So on Friday, we're gonna go into the analysis a little deeper, walk with the apostles, because they fought against these high place principalities and powers. And they dealt with them by the same spirit of discernment that God is giving us. All right, that's it.